Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. If you're reading from the Bibles at the back of the church, the passage begins on page 1073. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you, will, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Grace. With your parents' permission, Children up through third grade are dismissed to junior worship. For the rest of us, let's take a moment. Let's prepare our hearts for God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you eager as your son has promised to us that we may ask anything in your name. So long as it is in keeping with your glory and with your goodness, you will grant it. And so, Father, we ask, show us yourself. We want to see Jesus. We want to see you. We want to see you in your word, and we want to be changed by it. Father, help us. Without your help, we can't see you. Without your help, our hearts won't turn to you. So come and aid us, and we ask it in the powerful and precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, I am on a high this morning. I don't know if you got to go to Sunday school with Pastor John. I did, and it was really, really good. Um, and the music was just wonderful and focusing our minds on Christ. Isn't it good to sing together as a body of Christ? Oh, friends, I also love this passage. I love this passage a lot. It ties together three different themes. 
And any of you know me now, you begin to get, you begin to get to know me. So you know, over a year, you probably get the sense that I, my emotional disposition on the whole lands more on the melancholy. And joy is a precious idea to me. Joy is a really, really amazing thing. And so I really like this passage. <laughs> the main idea of this passage today is that prayer is essential to Christian joy. There's probably three or four other main ideas I could give, but this is the one we're going to focus on. Prayer is essential to Christian joy. Our goal today is going to be to show how our faith, our joy, and our prayer are related, and how they are rooted in Jesus, and how they are, particularly, ultimately, prayer, essential to our Christian life. So prayer is essential to Christian joy. We're going to break it into two parts. Because this is a hard passage. And there's, there's debate about what Jesus is saying here. There's debate about how far it extends. I hope and I never want to get beyond the limits of the text. I hope I don't today. So the first part, though, we're going to lay the foundation. We're going to talk about what's happening in the majority of the text. Part one, faith is how the heart sees Jesus. Faith is how the heart sees Jesus. In this passage, we're going to break this, this part into other parts. So the first bit that we need to see is in verses 16 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along with me. We'll be looking at John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. This first idea here is communicated from verses 16 through 20. Jesus is speaking primarily about the cross. In verse 16, Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Now, Jesus here, as he has been for this whole entire time, he is talking about his imminent death on the cross. But the disciples, as is their wont, are confused. You can see that if you look at verse 18 talked amongst each other, and they say, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So we, here we can see that the disciples are seeking information. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. And this is because, as we saw last week, apart from the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts, it is impossible to either fully or rightly understand the significance of Jesus' work on the cross. Remember last week, it's the task of the Holy Spirit to convict concerning sin, righteousness, and the final judgment. He's the one who guides us into all truth. He's the one who will point us to Christ. He's the one who glorifies Christ. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible for a human being to fully or rightly understand the significance of Jesus' work on the cross. What distinguishes a believer, then, from a non-believer is not only how clearly or rightly they understand the cross or the gospel. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, you heard them. We've, there's lots of people in churches all across America who think they understand the gospel. They think they know who Jesus is. 
There's more to distinguish a believer from a non-believer than just knowing what the gospel is, even rightly or clearly. It's how they live in response to or in light of the cross and the gospel. So what does the cross do to your heart? So the second subpoint here is we see a distinction. The world rejoices at Jesus' death. The church rejoices in Jesus' life. So Jesus is speaking primarily about the cross, and the thing that distinguishes believers from non-believers is how they emotionally relate to the cross. Look at verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. For the world, that's anyone who's not living by faith in the Son of God, Jesus' death on the cross brings them joy. Now, it may not at first appear as though that's the case. I mean, after all, we do not get up in the morning regularly and hear news anchor begin their daily broadcast by saying, good morning, America. And it is a good morning, isn't it? After all, Jesus is dead. That's not what Jesus means, though, right? He means our life, he means our choices and our behavior to one degree or another reflect what we love. They reflect what we enjoy. In John 3, 19, Jesus said people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And we said this meant they loved or preferred sin. They enjoyed sin. You can hear the language of joy, rejoicing there. Now apply this here. Why or in what way does the world rejoice at Jesus' death. Well, if Jesus did not rise victoriously from the dead, as he claimed he would, then all of his claims fall flat. That means he hasn't spoken God's word. That means he is not God's agent. That means he cannot claim our absolute allegiance and trust. In the world's mind, Jesus' death means we are not sinners, even if we are, we do not need saving. In short, if Jesus is dead, we are free to live as we please. And that is how they rejoice. They live by what they can see with their eyes. They live as though Jesus is not alive. Well, if he were alive, why doesn't he show himself to me? They live as though Jesus is not alive. They live for the weekend. They work hard to play hard. They say things like, you only live once. They don't fear God. They fear missing out. But for anyone who trusts and hopes in Jesus, what does Jesus say? In verse 20, he says, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful, he says. Only in the light of Jesus' resurrection does the cross become the occasion for Christian joy. 
And that is why Jesus says in verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. See, the joy of the cross only becomes apparent as we look back on it. The joy of the cross only becomes apparent when we can see it with eyes of faith from the vantage point of Jesus' resurrection. It's only good that Jesus went and died on the cross if Jesus rose from the dead. Now, this is one reason why Christians gather for worship on Sunday. We're gathered on the Lord's Day. We're having Lord's Day meeting right now because Jesus Christ is not dead. Because Jesus Christ is alive. And we remind ourselves every single week, I gather together to praise the living God. I don't serve a dead God. I serve a living God. And I'm there today on the day that he rose from the dead. Why? Because our joy only makes sense in light of his resurrection. A Christian is delighted to know that Jesus is alive. For if Jesus is alive, then we have escaped God's wrath. And we have entered into his joy. We will never be separated from him. We will be raised to new life. It means we have meaning. Our lives have purpose. It means that we can endure any suffering. Because we have a hope for a real and better future. Oh, friends, the epicenter of Christian joy is Jesus. And seeing Jesus alive turns our sorrows into joy. So the third point under here is the church is delivered to life and joy through the anguish of the cross. The church is delivered to life and joy through the anguish of the cross. Jesus compares the pain of childbirth to his own agony on the cross. If you see in verse 21 through 22, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy, the human being has been born into the world. If any of you have ever had the chance to see it, it's a, that is a beautiful facial expression. I'm not certain which facial expression of my wife I like more. You can see one, they've, got a, they've actually got a picture of it when she's coming down the aisle to see me, and I've got one of her right after she delivered David. Man, <laughs> a truer word has not been spoken here. He says, so also you have, <clears throat> you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus assures his disciples that the joy of his resurrection will overcome the sorrow of their death. Meaning it, the joy will be stronger than the sorrow they felt when he died. And Jesus, by dying an agonizing death on the cross for miserable sinners, and by rising from the dead, delivers anyone who trusts in him, not just from God's wrath on their sin, but into new and ever-increasing joy. And now notice here that it is how we see Jesus, meaning 
whether we believe that Jesus is alive, risen and reigning, or whether we believe that Jesus is dead, that directs our joy and controls our sorrow. You see, the worldly conviction that Jesus is dead has a profound effect on how someone who does not believe in Jesus handles their grief or how they pursue their joy. It is the fundamental basis about why you choose to do what you're going to choose to do ultimately arises from, is Jesus dead or is Jesus alive? And the Christian conviction that Jesus is alive colors every sorrow that we experience. A Christian enduring cancer is fundamentally different than a non-Christian enduring cancer. They both hurt. They're both deeply uncomfortable, with grievous ills of this world. The Christian knows that Jesus is alive. It doesn't mean the Christians never experience sorrow or suffering. Far from it. It means that the joy of Jesus indwelling in eternal life is more powerful. It overcomes those other realities. And that's because the fourth idea here is that Christian joy is rooted in seeing and savoring Jesus. Look at verse 22. It says, so also you have sorrow now. He's just talking about dying. If you love Jesus Christ, the, the, just the idea of Jesus saying, I'm going to go die now, would grieve your soul. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And this, friends, I believe, I could be wrong, I think this is the heart of this passage that when Jesus sees us, and when we see him, our hearts are filled with joy. Now, admittedly, there are three ways that we could understand this expression, I will see you again. It could refer first to when the disciples physically saw Jesus Christ resurrected. It could mean when we all will physically see him ruling and reigning on the last day. And, or, or, it could refer also to a kind of spiritual understanding, a kind of seeing that the heart does by faith in God's word that preserves us until we can see and do see Jesus. I think the answer to which one of these is yes. I think it's obvious. I think it's on the face of the passage that Jesus in this passage is specifically referring to when the disciples see him resurrected. I mean, that, that's the obvious meaning. I'm going to go away, then you will see me, and when you see me, you will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's true, but I think to a certain extent, my whole entire conception of what it means for me to be a pastor is based on this other element that I think Jesus is speaking about. I think he goes beyond this meaning. So fifth, 
Faith is how the heart sees Jesus. I want to take you to a few passages. So field trip time, you ready? I'm going to take you to at least two passages just to think through this. Consider, and they'll be up on the screen. You can page to them as well. Consider 1 John 3, verses 2 through 3. The apostle says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, and that is Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we got to see one angle of this in Sunday school this morning. And here I think John is primarily speaking about how we will see Jesus on the last day. So just like in the gospel, he's talking about when the disciples see him right then, when he resurrected. Here, in this epistle, John is speaking to believers and talking about the last day. But he seems to be saying that the mere hope of physically seeing Jesus has an ongoing present spiritual effect. In other words, he says, everyone who hopes in Christ is changed. He's purified. He's made more like Christ by hoping that he will see Jesus. They become less like the world. They become more like Christ. And this seems to be an inward, a spiritual kind of sight that draws on the joy and the life of Jesus that's based on our confidence that we will see him well, here's another passage. Peter also speaks to believers like us who never saw, or I'm trusting, never saw the risen Christ saying, so 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. He's addressing the church. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now here, Peter seems to say that faith in Jesus' resurrection has a sp present spiritual effect, just like hope in the last day and seeing Christ raised would have a present spiritual effect. Peter seems to say that faith has this same similar effect. He says everyone who believes in Jesus experiences joy. And that just drove me to think. The joy that John might say comes from seeing the risen Christ. Now, I need to be cautious here. I'm not suggesting that what we should do is go and imagine what Christ looks like. Christ's appearance is not the root of Christian joy. Not advancing a kind of iconography that we need to either invent or imagine what Jesus looks like because when we see what he looks like, that, that's going to make me really happy. No. I mean that when our heart, guided by God's spirit, as we studied last week, trusts in God's word, it experiences something that is essential to enjoying and obeying God. In that sense, it sees Jesus. Friends, we know faith is fundamental to Christian living. And it depends not on a physical kind of sight. 
faith depends on a spiritual kind of sight. Two passages to help us think through that. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Remember how we said the world lives by what they can see. Christians do not. We live by what we can't see. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, then, I am arguing, is how the heart sees Jesus. A Christian's faith is rooted in the truth that Jesus is alive. We read this book, and we trust the testimony of its authors that they saw the living, resurrected Christ, that he was not dead. And we look at that and we say, I believe that Jesus is not dead, that he is alive. Friends, a Christian faith is rooted in this truth that Jesus is alive, that he is ruling, that he is reigning, that he is glorious and powerful. I think it's this kind of inward spiritual perception that has such a profound effect upon our daily life. You could look and see this scattered all across Scripture. Think of the joy of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they see a fourth man in the flames. Now, I don't know who it was, but I have to think that a moment before, I would be really terrified to walk into that fire. Or think about how Stephen looks up and he says, I see Jesus seated on the right hand of God Almighty. And how that vision upheld him as the stones flew through the air and he suffered a martyr's death. Or think about Job. How Job endured extraordinarily great suffering all the while believing that he would see his Redeemer. Now, friends, seeing our living Lord, I think, has a marvelous effect upon a faithful soul. Just as the world's joy in Christ's supposed death works out in their choices and their behavior, so our joy in seeing and believing Christ truly affects how we will live. And while we can't consider every single aspect, in this passage, it seems to affect how we pray. So part two, prayer is faith in action. So part one, faith is how the heart sees Jesus. Well, how? Part two, prayer is faith in action. So Jesus is primarily speaking about the cross. I don't want us to lose sight of that. Jesus is primarily speaking about the cross, but... Jesus is also, it seems, speaking about prayer. And I believe that Jesus, when he speaks about asking the Father, as you could see in verse 24, I think he's talking about prayer. I mean, the most basic way that we ask God for anything is to pray. Jesus is, I think, linking joy. The joy that comes from seeing him alive, whether that's with your physical eyes or whether that's with your spiritual eyes, with faith, how those of us who never saw him with our physical eyes can know him to actually be alive, and prayer. 
that we and others might see Jesus more clearly and enjoy him more fully. Two, what we see here is that saving faith changes how and why we live and how and why we pray or ask. In verse 19, Jesus perceives that the disciples were seeking information. And he uses one Greek verb to express that, eratal. He uses the same verb in verse 23, in the first part. He says, in that day you will ask, eratao, nothing of me. I think what he means there is that meaning from the vantage point of his resurrection, and as a result of the Spirit's work in their heart, they will no longer be confused about the core of Jesus' ministry. In other words, they will be able to make meaningful sense of the cross. The story of the disciples all along the Gospels is Jesus says, I'm going to die, and they go, uh, it does not compute. <laughs> and he advances this, uh, this, this uh, statement over and over again, even to the point where Peter finally says, look, man, come over here. I need to explain something to you. Messiahs don't die. You are the Messiah, therefore you don't die. Like, they do not understand what the cross is about. Jesus is saying, no, once you, once you see what's going to happen, once the Spirit works in your heart, it's going to make sense. And in that day, you're not going to be asking me these questions anymore of like, a little while, where are you going? What do you mean because you go to the Father? You're going to know. <laughs> it's going to make complete sense. Trust me. But then as he continues in verses 23 through 24, Jesus chooses a different verb, aiteo. He says in verses 23 and 24, whatever you ask, Iteo, of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked, Iteo, nothing in my name. Ask, Iteo, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I, I don't want to read too much into this, but it is possible that this change in words reflects the effect of seeing the risen Christ with the eyes of faith. That once the Spirit has breathed new life and faith into our heart, once we're living, as it were, on this side of the cross, confident in Jesus' resurrection, our lives and consequently our prayers will change. Jesus gives us one or two examples here. He says <coughs> that the disciples will pray in his name and that their prayers rather than simply trying to understand Jesus' ministry, asking for information about the cross, will be aiming for a deeper, richer, more enduring, and more extensive Christian joy. He says, ask. You'll receive that your joy may be full. So it's these two phrases, in his name, and that your joy may be full, that seem to be the the changing points. Praying in his name means that rather than approaching God through an inadequate animal sacrifice and on the basis of a sinful priest, we can approach him boldly at any time as a member of his own household and on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. Praying that your joy may be full means that rather than primarily struggling to understand the gospel or the cross, I think it means that our prayers will become more concerned with advancing the gospel and applying the work of the cross in our life and in the lives of those around us. 
You see, once we know the joy of seeing Jesus, this, this joy that you'll have when you see him and the joy that no one can ever take away from you, once you see, once you experience that joy by faith, our prayers are gonna change. In fact, I think our whole life is gonna change because fundamentally, we're going to want other people to see what we saw. If, if seeing the risen Lord is the most beautiful, most satisfying, greatest, and best, and highest aim of every human being, and you even see just a part of that by faith, looking through the word of God, wouldn't you want everyone you know to see Christ that way? If you ever had a friend who other friends were gossiping about, and they were tearing down their reputation saying things about them that weren't true, you'd feel this hunger in your heart to be like, that's not my friend. You don't know my friend. That's not what they're like at all. They're like this. Well, friends, when you see the world going on as though Jesus is dead, as though he's not ruling and he's not reigning and he's not good and he's not righteous and he's not kind and he's not loving and he's just a philosopher or he's just a teacher, you've seen him. Wouldn't you want them to see him too? Frankly, don't we want them to know what we know? And don't we want them to see Christ more clearly? Don't we want that vision of Christ in our heart by faith to grow still further, to know him more fully, to enjoy him more completely? But we all know that only a work of God can open the sin-hardened soul to the light of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We know Jesus wasn't speaking about like a physical kingdom, like the disciples are all walking around and be like, there's the castle where Jesus reigns. Like That's not what he's talking about. He means to see by faith. He means that there's some inward kind of sight by which the soul can apprehend the goodness and the righteousness and the beauty of Christ. We know that it requires to be born again. And we also know that what must be begun by the Spirit cannot be completed in our strength. Galatians 3.3, Paul warns the church, he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He means adding on or trying to complete what the Spirit began by doing good stuff. No. We must ask God to do an amazing work. Because we can't do it. We can't start it. We can't finish it. We need God to show us himself. So we need to ask. Therefore, prayer is essential to the life and joy of a Christian. I know it was a long road to get there. So three, then, prayer is faith in action. Prayer is one way that our faith comes to life. Prayer is one of God's means of grace to display his glory, to advance his gospel, and by so doing, deepen and grow our joy. Friend, do you know God wants your joy to be more complete than it is now? He wants it to be fuller. He wants it to be richer. He wants it to be deeper. He wants you to know him more perfectly. This is why Jesus says in verse 24, ask, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. If prayer is an act of faith, 
I trust that it must be. You must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him if you pray to him. And it is by faith that we see Christ. And it is in seeing Christ that our joy is transformed. Well, then we ought to consider deeply how and why we ought to pray. To help us pray in light of this text, I want to briefly consider three aims for prayer and then three practical suggestions for cultivating a life of prayer, and then to conclude with an encouragement to pray. Three goals of prayer. We find three at least in John's gospel. The first is in John 14, verses 13 through 14, and it is that God may be glorified. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now first, we see here we are to pray in Jesus' name and not on our own. This doesn't just mean that we append a little phrase at the end of our prayers. It means we're praying on the basis of what Jesus has done. We, we are to pray in Jesus' name because we have no rights to anything good from God apart from what Jesus has done for us taking away our sins, clothing us in his righteousness. We are accepted in God's presence only because of Jesus. We can come to God only through Jesus. Not a saint, not Mary, not works, not nothing, but Christ and Christ alone. Secondly, the aim of all prayer is that God would be glorified in Jesus. Prayer, therefore, is a radically God-centered act. Prayer is primarily about God. It happens to involve you and me. When Jesus says whatever you ask, he means God will ultimately accomplish whatever you ask that is, is in keeping with my glory and purpose. Now, if Jesus had meant whatever without any qualifications, we would have to deny that God's glory is the aim of all prayer. Do you see? Why? Because we can all think of prayers that do not glorify God. Meaning, if God were to answer them, he would not be glorified. Meaning, he would be discredited. Meaning, he would be dishonored. We may not always enunciate these prayers with our lips, but sometimes our hearts whisper them. Like, God, please make me more important than yourself. Or, Please make pornography a godly thing to look at once a week. Or, God, please blind the IRS to my falsified tax return. Or, God, please put my competitor out of business. All of these prayers do not have God's glory in view. Prayer exists, like everything else, to show that God is supremely glorious. And any prayer that does not have God's glory as its honest goal has no claim on this promise from Jesus. So that God may be glorified. The second is that we bear much fruit. If you look at John 15, verses 7 through 8, you'll remember that Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. And none of us is ever so completely full of Christ's words that every request we make always accords with God's holy will. There are degrees. 
you are more or less saturated with the word of Christ, more or less in tune with God's will when you pray. But verse 8 informs how we take verse 7. God delights to answer prayers that aim at spiritual fruit, or at least two kinds, the fruit of Christ-like character, we love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, and gospel fruit, seeing the gospel take root for the first time or more deeply over time in someone's life, yours or someone else. And in terms of today's passage, God delights, it seems, to answer prayers that aim at someone, ourselves or others, seeing, loving, and enjoying Jesus more. Have you ever thought about praying that for someone? Have you ever thought about praying for your wife? I pray that she would enjoy Christ more. Have you thought about praying for your son? I, I pray that he would enjoy Christ more. I'm praying for my friend. I pray that my friend would know the joy of Christ. It seems as though the joy of Christ is, is diminished in their heart right now. Father, show yourself to them. Prayers to help living in such a way that points others to the glory and the goodness of Jesus. Father, help me live in such a way that displays your glory that overcomes obstacles, that draws other people to Christ. You see, John Piper is famous for this illustration, and I'm just going to steal it. Prayer is more like a wartime walkie-talkie than a domestic intercom. Prayer exists for advancing the mission, not calling the butler to turn up the thermostat. And that's not to say that God is opposed to our practical, nitty-gritty, day-to-day prayers. God, please help me right now to get the dishes done because, oh my word, <laughs> but it simply means he wants our prayers to relate to the mission of our life, that his name be glorified, that our life and our work prove fruitful in displaying God's gospel and glorious goodness. So prayer should be to glorify God. Prayer should be that that we would be fruitful, and prayer should be that our joy would be full, which brings us right here, because this is the third passage. Ask, you will receive that your joy may be full. A genuinely faithful heart that is convinced that Jesus is alive, longs for Christ to be seen more fully, more accurately, more truly, and enjoyed more completely. If you know, I love Moses' request. If God asked you, what do you want? What would you tell him? Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see you. One of the ways that God preserves, one of the ways that God strengthens, one of the ways that God upholds a Christian, especially in suffering, is by regular prayer. Prayer is one of God's means of grace to cause the scriptures to come alive in our minds and our hearts. Faithful prayer is what moves us beyond the spiritual confusion of the disciples prior to the cross and into the spiritual courage and selfless urgency for the gospel that follows the cross. Prayer is one means by which God may move us from merely understanding a text to loving a text, and from loving a text to loving him and rejoicing in him, because that is the goal of every text. Prayer is essential to Christian joy. So three practical suggestions. One, set aside a time I put in each day, but at this point, I just say, I know there's probably two things that Christians feel guilt about, prayer and evangelism. This can be hard. It's hard in my life. I'm sure it's hard in your life. Set aside a time 
to, to pray. Don't leave prayer to chance. If you haven't done this before, then start slow. My wife and I, we set aside on Monday night, put the kids to bed. We come together, first thing we do, even if it's two minutes, pray together that God would save our little children. Secondly, combine prayer with reading the Bible. Use scripture to guide your prayer. Take what you read and pray it back to God. Ask him to help you hear the word of scripture. Ask him to help you understand scripture. Ask him to help you obey what you read in scripture. And thirdly, consider praying in concentric circles. This is just a way to do it. It's not the way to do it. But all of them aimed at God's glory. Consider praying for your soul, then for your family, then for your friends and colleagues, then for your church, and then wider for God's global effort in the world and for political leaders in the land. Friends, in all of this, these are just suggestions because I, I want us to see prayer as a God-given means of grace. It is a wonderful gift to perfect and to apply the joy that he purchased for us with the cross. It's a way to prepare and preserve our hearts for his return. If we don't eat, we starve. If we don't exercise, we grow weak and sickly. And if we don't breathe, we suffocate. Friends, if we don't pray, we will miss out on the joy of Christ. You were made to know and enjoy the one true living God. That joy flows from a living faith. Seeing, peering as it were through God's word. Looking through the lens of God's people. By God's spirit's help. And in faithful prayer to see Christ. Christ risen, Christ reigning, Christ seated at the right hand of God the Almighty One, Christ one day returning. And our faith, and when that faith directs our prayers, God is pleased to answer them. And when God answers prayers that seek his face, our joy is made complete. All this, my friends, let us ask. You will receive that your joy may be full. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us. We want to see Jesus. Oh, Father, for those who are sorrowed in their heart at this moment for any reason, sickness, difficulty, death, loss, the brokenness of this world, their estrangement from family, the, oh, Father, we need to see Jesus. For those who are struggling in doubt, I'm not sure that Christ is as the word says he is. Oh, Father, we need to see Jesus. We live in a joyless world, Father. If you are not in it, you must fill it, and you must fill us. Help us to see you, Father. Help us to pray rightly and well. Help us to pray regularly that we might see you more clearly and that those around us might see you rightly, truly, fully, and savingly. And Father, above all these other things, on that last day, 
bring us with all your saints to the joy of your eternal kingdom that we may see you. So we just want to see Jesus. We ask it in his precious name.